You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Castro-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rob, great to be back with you this week. So much continues to happen in between our conversations. How are you doing today? Yeah, well, obviously it's Friday, which is good. Um, and uh, as we were discussing before we came came on air, I'm going to be taking some holidays soon, so that's equally good. So, so yeah, all good. Lots of things to look forward to. Just like today, I hope people are looking forward to the lineup we have in terms of topics and questions that we'll be tackling in today's episode. But before we do that, let's do as we normally do and just kind of hear what's been on your radar, what you've been focusing on uh, since we last uh, spoke a few weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, in terms of performance, actually, it's been pretty good. So um, I'm still in this kind of gradual, slow crawl out of the the horrors of March. <laughs> Which, uh, although to, to be fair, I wasn't hit too badly in March compared compared to a lot of people. So, I think in March I lost like um, something like four and a half percent or something like that. And given that I run a reasonably high vol target, that's actually quite good. Um, and then things going kind to of flatline for a while. And actually, the last few weeks has been has been pretty positive. So that's quite good. Um, I actually recently made some changes to my system, um, introduced a whole bunch of new markets. So I'm now actually, I've actually got data for over 200 futures markets. Um, I'm not trading all of them because some of them are duplicates. So, you know, for example, I, I collect data for both the, 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 the micro and the mini S&P as an example. But obviously, there's no point in trading both of those. Um, and quite a few of the markets I, I sort of have in my system, but I, I don't actually take positions on them because they're a bit expensive or not liquid enough. But but, uh, but yeah, the slug of new new markets in there. Just looking at my my current risk levels, then um, so uh, sort of slightly higher than, than the risk has been quite low the last few months, uh, at least in terms of expected risk rather than realised. Um, so it's a little bit higher than it has been, although still below average. And uh, my, my biggest risk actually um, is in the volatility um, sector, which is remarkable in a sense because actually that consists of just three three instruments. Um, so uh, it's not a sort of a big sector in terms of numbers of instruments. And um, you know, just looking at my my exposure, so I'm I'm short vol, which is like a risk on bet effectively. I'm also long equities, which again is another risk on bet. Um, and uh, I'm also interestingly, given given it still continues to be a very topical subject, <laughs> um, I'm actually don't actually have any exposure at the moment in interest rates or bonds at all. So, uh, so that that's kind of I'm kind of sitting on the fence in terms of the you know the big the big kind of debate between inflation and have we peaked and debt ceiling and all of this stuff. So, so that's that's kind of interesting as well. Um, my biggest um, long position um, is in um, Chinese US dollar FX. I've also got a longish position in live cattle. Uh, looking at my shorts, I'm short yen dollar, I'm short lean hogs, I'm short VIX as I've already discussed, and I'm short Euros, Euro VIX V stocks as well, if you like. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been an it's an interesting period. So. Very quickly, if I may, one, one thing I do every every year in, in April, because the UK tax year runs to April, so I have to 
you know, look at my performance for tax purposes. So I, I kind of do a bit of more extensive look at my performance generally and uh, put something on my blog as well. So um, this this time period probably doesn't mean much to many people and most people don't focus on it because obviously we normally focus on things like calendar years, but but just out of curiosity. So kind of interesting findings. One was that the um, the 12 months to April side so didn't wasn't a great period for me actually. Um, I was I was down and, and uh, obviously the the horrors of March kind of contributed to that, but I, I was down about sort of 9%, which is... You know, I think my second biggest loss since I started trading my own money about ten years ago. Um, but uh, you know, a nine percent calendar year loss uh, as a as a bad loss, I think for equity traders would be quite a good outcome. <laughs> but so yeah, so so one thing to kind of noticing is that actually not much did well last year in terms of different trading rules. Um, so um, you know, about a, I think a, re- a couple of things of relative carry did well, um, outright carry didn't do well, and mean reversion. Um, I've got a, a kind of long, slow mean reversion signal that did well, but everything else, carry momentum, you know, did did badly. So that's that's why it was kind of a, a relatively poor year for me. Other things that that kind of interesting that we don't talk about. So we always talk about performance, which you know means net performance, right? It means performance after costs, um, but we don't really talk about costs. So uh, I thought it'd be useful to kind of give you a flavour of what I actually pay in costs. Um, so um, looking at, at the the year to April. Um, in terms of commissions, I paid 21 basis points. And in terms of slippage, um, so the difference in the mid price and where I execute, um, I paid about um, well, just under 70 basis points. So my total costs were 90 basis points, um, which is less than 1%. Um, so that you know that just gives you a flavour for that it should be quite a cheap strategy to trade, you know, sort of medium speed trend following. It shouldn't be be uh, sort of super expensive and is it normal for you to have more cost on the slippage side than the actual commission is that completely normal that ratio kind of three to one yeah that that is normal and it will i think it'll depend a lot on the sort of amount of capital you're trading so um if you're a because um, commissions are you know for retail traders commissions are kind of fairly fixed i mean you you know you can pay a lot more than i've got a fairly competitive commission but if i was trading you know say a quarter of the size i'm trading now my commissions would be probably a little bit higher in terms of that equation. If I was an institutional manager, I'd expect my commissions to be almost zero, pretty much, um, as a proportion of my capital. But slippage would be a lot bigger; it'd be a lot bigger proportion. So, so that that's a, a you know a good way of thinking about it. But the, the sort of ninety basis points, one percent, one and a half percent. You know, I'd be surprised if the you know if there were many people out there trading at a similar speed to me who weren't seeing similar kind of numbers to that i think i'm, I'm maybe slightly lower than average because of, i've got this fancy dynamic optimization and one thing it does is deliberately reduce costs but but and uh, my costs are actually lower than they were so three or four years ago when i was trading a more kind of vanilla system if you like um but yeah mo- most people should be in that ballpark yeah i mean slippage is not something we talk a lot about uh, frankly but of course for some strategies it's quite important i agree for long-term trend following strategies even slippage is not a big thing uh, although uh, I guess it, it really also depends on how people calculate slippage in that sense. Um, I guess if you're using a sort of a stop in your uh, approach, it would be the the theoretical stop price that you want to trade at and then compare to the actual price you traded at. You mentioned something about a mid price, but that I guess that's because you're using a continuous 
uh, signal and 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 so I wasn't entirely sure what you meant by the mid price, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So so um, it might be worth going into a little bit more detail. So when when I back test my system, I'm, I'm using daily closing prices. Now it's actually impossible for me to trade out in the daily close. So what what I what you know, there's different people have different approaches to that. Um, what I do in my back test is is very simple. I assume my trade at the following day's close. So I assume a one day lag in my in my system. And actually, this is a really good test to see how sensitive your system is going to be to execution delays, because you can compare your system with and without this one day lag. And if you find a massive difference in performance, that's quite likely you're trading quite quickly. Um, and using daily data is probably, you know, too much of an approximation. You need much more frequent data to get a more realistic idea of, you know, of what your um, your performance is going to be. Um, but of course, I, in reality, I don't trade at the following day's close either. I trade at some point between the previous day's close and the the following close. Usually, usually, sometimes there's delays, but but usually. Um, so what so what I do is is I uh, I then when I come to actually execute my trade, um, and generally speaking, that's probably going to be roughly you know kind of in the early hours of the morning for Asian markets around 9 10 a.m for european markets and around three four o'clock for, for us markets very roughly um sort of you know that that sort of gives you a ballpark um when i come to actually execute my trade what i do is as i'm coming into the market to execute i i take a snapshot of where the market currently is so where the best bid is where the best offer is and, and of course the mid price which for me is just a simple average of those two numbers and then um when i then i actually execute and then that gives me another number. And then what I can basically do is actually disaggregate my, my my slippage into different components, okay? So the first component is the difference between the previous day's close and the mid when I come to execute. So you can think of that as like, as like a delay. And as I said, if you're trading slowly enough, that should be approximately zero. I mean, obviously, it'll sometimes be very big because if the market's moved a lot from the previous day, then it'll be it'll be quite big, but it should average out to, to almost zero. Um, and I, I check in my back test that it's almost zero, and I also check in my kind of live production environment that it's almost zero. So it's very very noisy on individual trades, but it should average basically to zero. Because you know, as a slow trend follower, I'm not really suffering from the fact that I'm having to delay my execution by you know a third or a half or a, you know three quarters of a day. And then what I do is I compare the mid price to where I actually execute and that's my slippage but actually because I'm capturing the bid and ask I can actually decompose that further into what you feel like my expected slippage which would be if I was to you know trade either at the best bid if I'm selling um, or, or vice versa and versus what I actually receive now if I was a big institutional trader, I would expect to do worse, consistently worse than that bid ask spread, because I'm trading in probably much bigger size than the top of the order book. Um, if I was just submitting market orders the whole time and just just which is the most naive thing you can do, I'd expect to always pay pretty much exactly half that spread, because I'm actually using a little bit of a slightly fancier approach where I've got an execution algorithm. In practice, I actually make a little bit of money over and above. So I pay a little bit less than I would if I was crossing the spread every time. I can give you hard numbers. So I said I paid about um, 70 basis points in slippage. I'd be paying about um, 95 basis points if I just crossed the spread every time. So my little execution algo is to save me 25 basis points, which you know, is not a lot, but 
25 basis points every year, you know, it's going to buy you. Even, even on my account size, it's going to buy buy a few dinners. You know, it's going to be worth. Taking. If we were having Andrew on the uh, on the show today, he would say it's pure alpha. It, well, it is. It, it, I mean, it, it's basically pure alpha because it's it's also very consistent. So if I plot like the cumulative profits of that execution strategy, it's a straight line. It's like the account, the the sort of dream account curve. Um, it's 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 got a bit of negative skew because every now and then it it. it does badly because it the market moves away from it very fast too feel fast for it and i better there's a bit of a sharp drawdown but it, it's just a beautiful otherwise you know just a really nice straight account curve um but so you can think of that as a kind of little high frequency overlay on my big slow ponderous trading system to which i allocate effectively a tiny amount of my risk capital cool Good stuff. All right. Well, um, just staying in the trend-following realm, not much really to report uh, from this week. Obviously, we are recording on a Friday, so as of Thursday uh, yesterday, uh, you know, performance pretty pretty quiet. Maybe a little bit up uh, on the broader uh, CTA indices that we follow, uh, but not a lot of action. I think though, since we are coming towards the end of a month, um, this is our last uh, episode before the end of May. You know, there has been some markets uh, that have stood out uh, in my view. Japanese equities have done pretty well, I would imagine. Lean hogs, you mentioned yourself, um, also looking interesting on the short side. Orange juice, of course, a lot of people talk, talking about that and and that uh, bullish trend that still continues. Um, there's been a little bit of action in the base metals that also provided some opportunities, I think. And then, of course, yields have been rising again uh, after the, um, the challenges of March. Uh, yields have been starting to tick up again, although, of course, managers will have had will have had uh, to reduce their exposure, so uh, the impact is less. Nevertheless, I think there are some nice performance to be picked up from uh, those models who have stayed short, uh, which, of course, is not all of them. My trend barometer is stuck at, uh, in the neutral zone. Uh, as of yesterday, it was at 36, so it's just really been stuck in this neutral zone for months now, which I think reflects pretty well what's been going on in the CTA space this year, uh, you know, up one month, down the next, and so on and so forth. We'll see when it breaks out, uh, hopefully to the upside sometime soon. Speaking of the indices, I noticed that the Beta 50 index is uh, up about 75 basis points, coming close to flat now for the year, down 1.55%. Same with the SOCGEN CTA index, up 1.5% roughly, uh, down 1.75% for the uh, year. Trend index having a good month, up about 2% for the month of May, down 2.6% for the year. One surprise maybe is the short-term traders index. It's down for the month of uh, May, down 1.27%, and down for the year about 343 So actually lagging now the other uh, types of indices despite uh, a really hard-hitting uh, March. And actually some uh, quote-unquote uh, episodes that shorter-term models um uh, at least is marketed to be able to uh, navigate better than trend followers. Anyway, time will tell. MSCI World is down a little bit uh, so far this month, down 1.4, but still up 7.5 for the year. And the government bonds, as I mentioned, yields are rising, so that index is down 1.6% in May. And the S&P 500 down about half a percent so far this month, but still up 8% for the year. Now, um, as I said last week, just for those who think that the format is a little bit different today, well, it is because I'm trying to 
uh, pack more content and less fluff into these conversations. So we're going to jump straight to the questions that came in from our great community. Uh, so thank you very much for the, all of those who took time to send a question to Rob. Anyway, uh, the first one is from David. David writes, big fan here, reader, listener. I really appreciate the work you put out uh, and the quality information uh, for everyone to learn. Congrats, Rob, on the new book, Getting Through It Step by Step. My question is about continuous trading signals construction. Suppose my discrete system will give a signal from plus to minus one and that my entry rules dictate to enter only when price surpasses the signal sparse high or low, depending on long or short. So there are no position to take until price sort of confirms itself on the next candle. Now, to make the signal continues, what are our options? One, make some sort of trailing moving average counting the signal bar in the last N bars, then introduce variations, multiple timeframes, parameters, and then aggregate equal weight for the continuous signal regardless of where price is. Or two, wait for the signal and wait for the price to move at the execution point and then modify the signal value from plus to minus one accordingly in order to consider the price movement in the signal. My intuition uh, would tell me option one is less precise, but perhaps less at risk of overfitting. Any suggestions or references to particular sections of your books? Yeah, that's the first question. I mean, the answer's neither, to be honest. Yeah, so um, if you were doing something like, um, say, a moving average system, then the the basically you make your position proportional to let's say it's just a single moving average system, so your signal is going to be whether the moving average is below or above the current price. And let's assume you're trend following, because, you know, this is top traders unplugged. <laughs> um, so you're going to wait for the price to cross over the, the, the move, whatever moving average you're using, and that would be the point at which you'd go long. And then the continuous part of it is you essentially make your position bigger as the gap between those two things increases. And the same is true if you're using double moving average. It's the distance between the two moving averages and there's kind of vol normalization scaling in there and, and stuff as well. Um, having said that, though, there is some kind of truth in option one, which is that it's possible to construct a continuous system from a, a huge variety of discrete s systems. Um, and this is this is actually a, um, a statistical result, which basically says that if you combine a large number of um, random, uncorrelated binary things like plus and minus one, you end up with a normal distribution. You end up with a continuous distribution of, of, of something. Um, so in, in the way of thinking about that is you can have a whole bunch of discrete things that say with if x happens then buy or sell which is you know the kind of definition of a of a discrete system um and then and then basically you you know let's say you've a hundred of these things well you, you imagine you just assign them all a plus one for long minus one for short and then you add them all up and you're going to get a number between minus 100 and plus 100 and that's basically then your continuous signal so that, that's the other way of doing it um i, I the, the language that, that dave is using is kind of you know with things like candles and, and, and confirmation stuff like that is very much what i would call a kind of old school technical an analysis sort of language um and you know it's all that that's very much thinking about a discrete system as if x happens then do y continuous trading is completely different from that continuous trading says what do i currently think the market's 
going to do? Is it going to go up or down? And I want to calibrate that thought and turn it into a number. And that, you know, that, that could be done in a semi-discretionary way, actually. Um, but then once I've made that decision, I then translate that into a position I want to hold. And then I adjust my portfolio to achieve that position, which will, you know, if I've got more bullish since I last checked, I'll be buying and vice versa. Good stuff. I thought I had some audio problems just now because I, I thought I heard the word discretion when you just talked. But anyways, let's just skip that. It must be. It must. We'll, we'll, we'll get the producer to edit it out because there's no way I would have said that. <laughs> All right. Okay. David has a little bit of a follow-up question um, where he says, how do we balance alpha signal and execution si signal when converting a discrete system to a continuous one? Is there any thoughts on that from your side to or? be honest i don't i don't actually understand what he means okay. by an alpha alpha signal and an execution signal again i think it's an old school technical analysis thing where you know maybe you're using your your bollinger bands to um to to say whether long or short but you don't enter your position until you see your fibonacci thing confirm it you know so it's more if x and y do z Again, it's completely different from the way I trade, so I don't understand what he means. No, and that's fair. I mean, I think that I'm sure everybody appreciates that when we get these questions, we obviously don't know always how um, people, what people mean when they send them in, but we can only read them as, as, as they come, and uh, obviously we'll do our best. Here's another interesting one that I had to do a little bit of uh, uh, digging on. Um, it's from Adrian. He says, do you, do you believe in regime switching model for trend following strategies such as the hi hidden uh, Marco model to minimize variance on typical trend following strategies? Now, for those of you like myself that had no idea what a hidden Marco model is, I asked my friend ChatGBT and just so <laughs> you know, uh, this is what it said. A hidden Marco model is a statistical model used to analyze systems with hidden states. It generates uh, observable outputs based on these states, and the transitions between states follow the Marco property. Hidden Marco models are used for various fields and are helpful when dealing with sequential data and incomplete observations. Anyways, I'm hoping you kind of know what this is and can help Adrian. I do, I do. I actually know more about hidden Markov models than I do about the previous question, I'm pleased to say. Um, it does feel like we've gone from the ridiculous to the sublime, I have to say. I think maybe next time Neil sort of space the questions out so we move more gradually from, you know, candlesticks to hidden Markov processes. And actually, interestingly, um, the, the sort of technology inside ChatGPT does have sort of something a little bit like a Markov state model inside it, but, you know, that's that's another subject. Um, yeah, so um, a way, basically, what you want the way I think about this is that effectively, well, let's, let's talk about markets. So markets are in regimes, right? So, and we can often identify regimes ex post. We can say, oh, you know, that that's a, a bull market and a bear market, or you know, here's a period when there's a lot of uncertainty, or you know, here's a period when there was a recession, and and, and so on and so forth. Um, so maybe what we want to do is, is say ex post. Well, look, here's a period when trend following does well, and here's a period when trend following does badly. Um, and uh, if we can identify where the, when those states are contemporaneously, in other words, if we know now this is not a good time to do trend following, or that it is a great time to do trend following, then we can kind of adjust out, you know, our sort of position size or allocation to trend following if we're, you know, like an allocator, depending on on, on what that what that signal is. Um, and the key thing about um, the, these models is is that we're able to identify sort of immediately when there's been a switch from one regime to another. Um, which isn't normally the case because because normally, okay, 
let's say it's currently a, a good time to be trend following, um, no one puts up a big poster saying tomorrow the regime changes and it's now it'll be a bad time to do trend following close your positions by the end of the day nobody does that sadly it's normally a few months before you kind of go well actually this is now a bad regime to be trend following before it was good um the, the idea behind these these state models is they basically tell you that the current probability that you're in a particular state um and you might have a rule that says something like if there's more than an 80 percent chance that i'm in the bad state of a trend following then i'm going to deallocate from my trend following portfolio um and and um and hopefully that will allow me to to make profits so that's the theory now does it work is the question um the answer is um i mean not really i mean you can get great results with these sorts of models on a sort of purely in sample basis so if you, you know you fit the model and you you know you come up with your your, your state transition probability matrix uh, as it's called um and uh, you know it all looks amazing and you can see the thing switching beautifully in and out of regimes but when when you actually then try and run that out of sample or with real money it's much harder um and uh, you know so so cliff asness is a big fan of saying basically you know don't try and time factor allocations just basically expose yourself to to risk premium like the risk premium from from trend following um and uh, because you know if, if you're using any kind of model that that sort of scales its bet size according to the opportunities available in other words you put on more risk when trend following has got more opportunities available then that actually to an extent is kind of allocating and deallocating for you uh, and to then go beyond that and try and time it you know even more by using a markov process or something else is really difficult um so um you know so th there's that now there is potentially uh, the other the other idea is to say well let's is there some other variable some other thing we can we can use to tell us whether today is a good day or a bad day to be a trend follower and um the difference between this and the hidden markov model is obviously this would be observable you know, you'd actually be able to have a, a number you can look at that would tell you what state you're in or what probability you're in a particular state. Uh, and again, this, you know, it doesn't work very well. And in fact, the only success I've had with this is by using um, market volatility to tell me whether now is a good time or a bad time to trend follow. So um, trend following just doesn't seem to do so well when volatility is high which is kind of a counterintuitive result I'm, I'm not sure if i talked about it in the podcast before or not but um, i think i have so i'm not going to go into too much detail about it um, but that's th this is literally like the only thing i found in, in spending a long time looking at this because people are always coming up with this bright idea wouldn't it be great if we could you know do less trend following when it's bad and vice versa in practice it's very difficult and i'd say generally speaking it's it's a bit of a, a time time sink and uh, you know a lot of effort to not really achieve much yeah no i completely agree with that and actually i think i mean i think it just goes back to the simple uh, things that i think most trend followers would say if asked and that is you can't time it uh, i mean we even us inside the industry we can't time it um and 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 actually um i mean of course we know often uh, things happen um and which we'll talk a little bit about later on in the show today um, you know, adverse price action might happen at a time when trends are actually pretty strong. And which just we got a reminder of in March, of course, because a lot of managers the day before uh, the big event were at new all-time highs. Things were looking pretty good. So, yeah, no, I, um, I, I think I completely agree with you. You shouldn't start uh, adding uh, more of these things, and, and I, I don't believe they work uh, either. And, 
if you need to, a tool to uh, find out whether it's a good day or a bad day for trend flowing, just look at your PNL. You know. So, anyways, all right, good stuff. Um, we're going to move on to a question or two from Eli. Eli writes. I'm looking forward to Rob's return, and I have a few questions I was hoping you could share with him on the podcast. Of course. Rob says in his new book, and I, sh I should stress here, I'm quoting, of course, um, what a Eli has written. Rob says in his new book that vault targeting is the second free lunch in finance, brackets, there goes Jerry falling off his treadmill, <laughs> bracket end, full stop. This applies to trading systems such as trend following, but it also applies to a buy and hold portfolio as Rob discusses in the first few chapters of his book. My question is, many traders have extremely limited capital and cannot hold a basket of vol targeted futures. The best they can do is to own a very various stocks, bond and commodity ETFs which trade for several hundred dollars a share. Assuming they can't take on leverage, is there value in relative vol targeting? Uh, question mark. To take a simple example, suppose you want 50% of your risk in stocks and 50% in bonds, you would adjust your positions daily so that you maintain those percentages, but the overall vol of each position and the portfolio could be fluctuating quite a bit. Is there a lunch to be had? Question mark. Not sure there's a lunch. There's probably a light snack. Um Okay, there's a, there's a big issue, there's a big elephant in the room, but I'll come to that after I've answered the question, if that's okay. So, ignoring the elephant, um, holding um, a, a sort of, a re you know, a relative vol-targeted portfolio of stocks and bonds would be better than not doing it. If you think that vol-targeting adds value, then this kind of relative vol-targeting will also add value, although not as much as, as if you could trade, you know, leverage futures, which, you know, is, is the issue, right? Um, but this is this is a kind of very very minor problem because there's a much much bigger problem which is this: um, if you want to hold equally risk weighted portfolio of stocks and bonds, you're going to have a much bigger proportion of your cash in bonds than in stocks. Um, it's going to be like you're going to have like a twenty eighty portfolio, something like that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not so much recently because the vol of bonds, <laughs> vol of bonds has, has gone up quite a bit recently. But, but um, you know, on, on a historical average over a long period of time, um, you know, it's you're going to have more more of your capital, your cash, in bonds to achieve, you know, what you want to achieve, which is a equal risk weighting across both assets, um, and that that portfolio will give you the maximum risk adjusted return. Will give you the maximum Sharpe ratio. But of course, what it won't do is give you much of an absolute return because you you know you, you're um, you, you're getting rid of a lot of return from stocks and exchanging it for low volatility, and because you haven't got the power of leverage, you can't then convert that sharp ratio, that high risk adjusted return, into a high return at a given risk target. So you're going to end up with a portfolio that that has a, a you know a, a sort of uh, expected standard deviation. Um, well, it's going to be halfway between stocks and bonds so it's going to be might be like 10 11 12 percent something like that depending on what your bond portfolio has got in it um and it's going to have um you know a, a return that's 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 okay but is nowhere near as good as a return expected return would be if you were in a much higher percentage of stocks and this is the problem of the efficient frontier that that you know we finance has known about since you know the like 1950s so i'm not telling anybody anything here they don't know um and that's the main the main issue you're going to have and, and and whether you know the fact that your your uh, expected volatility is going to vary day by day in this risk weighted portfolio 
It's a very, very minor issue indeed compared to the, the, the problem you have in that your actual return is going to be quite a bit lower. And there's not there's no way of easily squaring this circle. Um, you know, you, it's if you can't use leverage, you, you often have a straightforward trade-off between, and you have to accept um, either a lower return to maximise your risk-adjusted return or you accept a lower risk-adjusted return to maximise your return. Or you could maximise, you know, your, your CAGR, your, your geometric return, which is going to put you somewhere between those two. And that's theoretically the best thing to do. Um, and that's But that's going to result in a um, probably a much higher proportion of your money in stocks than, than you would, you know, and therefore a lower risk-adjusted return. Um, but, you know, you can't eat sharp ratio, is something I'm fond of saying, unless you can use leverage. Right. You talked about an elephant. Did, did that? Did you talk about the elephant? I did talk about an elephant. Yeah, that that okay. is the elephant. Oh, that is the elephant. Okay. Yeah, fine. yeah. There isn't another elephant. There's not two elephants in this There's room. There's not I mean, two elephants in the room. No, no. I mean, okay, how big okay. do you think this room is? Yeah, it's not well, that big. I don't know. I'm looking you know. at your shed, and it's pretty big, actually. So. It's not. It's not got room for two elephants. No. <laughs> Only Fair one enough. elephant. Only okay. one. All right, so there's a follow-up from Eli, and he uh, writes, Rob calculates different uh, trend signals, and assuming they're all of the same type, like exponential weighted moving average, he equal weights them. This is effectively rebalancing between signals every day. Has Rob considered maintaining each signal's allocation for a longer period and then rebalancing periodically through rebalancing bands, or some other methodology. This would presumably lend to some more positive skew to the portfolio. Is the potential benefit not worth the substantial extra work, or is this suggested method um, not in fact optimal? I know these were long, so thank you in advance for taking the time. There we are. Yeah, this is actually a very interesting question. I, I, I kind of like the question because it, it's forcing me to think in a way I don't normally think, which I think is good, right? I mean, the first question was doing the same thing, but in a way I didn't like as much. This is a much more intellectually, very intellectually stimulating question. So I'm, I'm just waffling here to give myself time to think, Niels, clearly. You I know, know, I know. You know that, time. the yeah, listeners yeah. know that. Sure. It's a yeah. familiar strategy that I use. Um, so, because basically um, th this question only makes sense if you imagine that each of your little kind of trading rules is effectively like a mini portfolio. And, um, you know, the Eli's correct. What, what I'm implicitly doing is, is in the same way we're allocating stocks and bonds just now, I'm allocating money to each of these little mini portfolios, um, you know, and uh, implicitly I'm giving them the same amount of risk capital every day. Um, and that's kind of what's happening. You know, so the alternative way of doing that is to sort of say, well, if, if a little mini portfolio is doing well, then that's going to end up getting more money in the same way that if you had a stock and bond allocation, you weren't rebalancing, you know, so you start with, say, 60-40, and then stocks do really well. At some point, you'll be at, you know, 80-20, and you kind of, you know, you, without rebalancing, that's where you'd eventually end up. Um, and um, that is um, better... If you have trends, obviously, because you want to kind of let the trend ride in your in your stock portfolio, and it depends on your rebalancing frequency. So, you know, if 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 you rebalance, say, um, once every couple of years, that's that's pretty good because you know that's when the trends are kind of exhausted themselves. And and Cam Harvey, of course, is a great friend of the, friend of the show, has has written some stuff on 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 timing rebalancing um, in relation to momentum effects. So it's quite an interesting topic. Um, so that's that's where the underlying assets. Now, what about in this case where we've got these these little portfolios consisting of trading rules? The question is whether 
does the the trading rule PL itself have momentum? And the answer is, well, you know, it's not really, it's not, there's not, there's not really not, there's not really much there. It's not a particularly strong effect. So broadly speaking, the trade, the PL from from a kind of medium speed momentum sort of fund, if you like, does seem to have some what we're going to get technical positive autocorrelation for frequencies between about six months and a year. Um, so if trend following's been, you know, we go back to the earlier thing about Markov state, Markov states. You know, another way of thinking about it is like this: Well, if trend following's been doing well in the last few months, it's probably going to continue doing well in the next few months because this is positive autocorrelation. If you like, momentum has momentum, um, but it's not a very strong effect. It's a very weak effect. It's not really statistically significant. Um, so it, it kind of comes down to being one of these things that's kind of, for me, intellectually curious. But as the questioner says, the amount of work involved in exploiting this would be just enormous compared to the potential benefit. And it's not just the, the, the work, it's the fact that you, you know, you make your system more complicated, your code becomes more potentially, you know, buggy, you lose intuition. It's just, just a whole heap of reasons why you don't want to introduce complexity into your system unless you think there's a really, really strong benefit from it. Um, now, the reason I said this question made me think is because I don't actually in practice run lots of little mini portfolios of trading rules. You know, that's not the way. Essentially, when I'm at the stage of, of having lots of trading rules, different, say, moving averages of different speeds, and I'm combining them, at that stage, they're just numbers. You know, they're not they're not kind of quote-unquote portfolios. I haven't translated them into positions. Um, so, you know, because that's, so that's why I said the question made me think differently, because I you know, because the way I construct my portfolio means this question never comes up. So, so yeah, it's 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 a, an interesting question, and it made me think. But but I think the answer is probably no for me. Okay, cool. Something else that might make you think, Rob, actually, is um, uh, Alan and I had a pretty interesting uh, conversation with Brian Proctor uh, that we published on Monday. Um, he was very open about some of the stuff they were doing, which were certainly different to how they were taught because he and actually the founder of EMC were both turtles. And um, I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, anyways, I'm not going to spoil the the information here. People should go and listen to that uh, episode. All right, last question is from Quant Lurk. Even though we prefer people use their real name, frankly, when they yeah, ask a question. Yeah, this came but on anyways, Twitter, though, so what can you do? Pe pe I know. Most people don't use their real names on Twitter. I'm you and I are exceptions. But, but yeah. in a DM, in a DM, people could still say, well, Yeah, here's this is so-and-so. All right. Um, Quant Lurk writes, What kind of extensions slash strategies to your overall approach would you be looking at if you had more resources that is not managing all of your systems by yourself, having more money to spend on data, being able to trade on higher frequencies and the like. I'm not going to send it per email, um, but you might want to address it. All right, well, we will do that, Quantlurk. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess so I'm, my, my kind of go-to for making my system better is diversifying across instruments. And that's what I've been, I just said to you, I was yeah, doing we'll that, that right yeah. at the start, yeah. Um, so um, I'm a big fan of that. So I, I guess I, my, my kind of futures portfolio now is pretty much maximally diversified. As I said, I've got over 200 instruments. There's, there are, there's a few instruments I don't trade because of data fees. Um, Orange Juice actually is one you mentioned. Um, also, actually, ironically, I can't trade any of the futures that trade in the UK on the ice market. So that's, you know, the FTSE 100, the gilt, the short sterling. I don't trade any of those, uh, and also they also have some interesting uh, energy contracts like Brent. I don't trade any of those, so I guess I'd probably add those. 
Um, that would be, you know, given given I've got you know, all this extra money that I've been given. Um, and then also, in, obviously, in terms of instruments, I don't trade. So beyond futures, you've got single stocks. That's quite a lot. Of, you know, that would be you know quite a lot of work to to implement and and uh, to set up a team to do that. So I'd probably do that. Um, I probably trade um, options, um, options and futures. Um, and um, you know, well, if I if I think about the kind of classic kind of canon of things that CTAs have tended to expand to beyond futures, the other one is FX forwards. Um, you know that that may be not such a priority, but but um, you know there's there's quite a few exchange rates you can't trade with futures, at least not that they're liquid. So there's a bit of potentially a bit of value there. Um, and then you've got OTC instruments like you know interest rate swaps and things. You know, I mean, back in the day, it was all kinds of random stuff. I was was trading so that would be my first kind of go-to thing um the next question then i the guess is comes you know would i change i then look probably at my um i think my trading rules if you like so that you know so if you think about if we're diversifying across instruments maximally next thing is thing about diversifying versus rules and style and things like this um so i you know my kind of to-do research list is always like longer than anything I could achieve in a lifetime working by myself, even if I spent all my time on research, which I don't. Um, so, the, you know, I'd, I'd be able to, to give my research team a huge long list of things to look at. So, for example, you know, I think I'm allowed one plug of my new book per episode. In my new book, there's a quite a few strategies which actually I, I've researched, but I haven't implemented in my own system due to lack of time and resources. So, you know, there's, there's some stuff there that I know will work. And then, um, you know, the, the quant note talks about um, the, the next kind of angle of diversification, which is frequency. Um, I think there's probably some value in, I, I described to you, I have a simple execution algorithm that, you know, earns me this 20 basis points of free alpha. Um, I think obviously if I was running a, a, you know, a bigger fund with more capital, I'd have to focus more on execution and doing that well. And in the process, that would mean also that there's potentially faster trading strategies i could look at um which would require smarter and fancier execution but yeah high frequency i mean it's not it's not my area of expertise and i'm a big believer in in sticking to your, your area of expertise but but i guess the main benefit for me personally of having this this huge team of people is i could be even lazier than i currently am and just literally delegate everything I, so I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to, to presumably quant is gonna gonna allocate some money to me so i'm looking forward to seeing that exactly now you say this thing about um it kind of in gist that if i had a bigger team but you know what just from conversations that i've had and not that i'm a specialist whatsoever but i have to say uh, with the speed of what ai is doing um i mean who knows how many real people you need to have to do research um you know maybe there is actually in a couple of years uh, available technologies that might do a lot of uh, that work. But that's a different discussion. Just want to throw it in there. All right. We're going to tackle a couple of topics that uh, that you sent over. And then maybe if we have time, uh, just one uh, research paper that came out also uh, since we last spoke. Now, you sent me essentially three i think two of them are more sort of in in our wheelhouse um the other one is a little bit macro oriented and i actually want to start with the one where you say which cta should i buy or should you buy because i they, i was quite intrigued by the title because you gave me no clue what what this is going to be about so uh i'm just gonna have to give you the mic and um and 
and and listen. Yeah, so I have to admit that this was inspired by I was listening to another podcast. Um, I'm afraid to say, although I think I think you've probably covered this in your in at some point the cockroach portfolio. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean Jason has been on the uh, on the on the pod on the podcast, yeah, sure. So yeah, so I I remember I think I I I've obviously heard the episode quite a while ago and you you knew and had Jason on, but um, he was on another podcast more recently, so that's where and I was kind of reminded of it. Um, but um, we don't get into details about what the cockroach portfolio is. You can go back and listen to the previous episode. Um, it's a you know it's a, it's an interesting idea, but um, the key the important thing for this conversation is part of it has an allocation to CTAs and um, the allocation is is um, there was some discussion around you know what what the CTA allocation is for okay and I found this interesting because actually thinking about what the CTA allocation is for then implies what kind of CTA should you actually be allocating to so this is very much a section for allocators um, because I think um, you know generally speaking as sort of CTA managers, if you like, as people who trade CTA strategies, um, we, we, we tend to kind of, I think, to an extent, craft the CTA in our, it, versus our belief in what, you know, a good CTA looks like. So, for example, we have these debates over things like, should we trade faster or slower? Okay. Um, you know, and uh, should should how kind of sort of positive skewy should your CTA be? You know, should you kind of be all out for positive skew, um, which you know implies things like, for example, you shouldn't vol target, uh, and so on and so forth. Or should you be focused more on getting a sort of more balanced uh, proportion of, of money coming in? Things we don't maybe talk about so much, but uh, but uh, related to this are th- questions like, um, what should the beta of your CTA be? You know, so your what's your average exposure to the market, whether the market is you know. 60-40 or just S&P or, or, or a long only basket of, of the things that you're trading. The the other thing that we probably, again, don't talk about so much, but, you know, if you look at the industry, there are managers who folk, who have a, a tilt towards a particular asset class. So there are, there are managers who, for example, just trade commodities. There are other managers, although this isn't as popular, who only trade financials. Um, and, you know, the sort of obviously there was a lot of people have the same portfolio that I do. And I think you think yourself where you, you're kind of trying to get a reasonably balanced allocation to all the different asset classes. But, you know, some people are very much the view that, that you should trade, you know, one sector or another sector or have a tilt towards different sectors. Um, so the, these kinds of um, decisions um, in terms of crafting your CTA, um, you know, the manager makes them on the basis of a, a their own opinions and ideology, if you like, but also their perception of what they think clients want. Um, but actually, um, it was I was listening to the, this, the, you know, this stuff about the cockroach portfolio. Actually, what this really comes down to, to me, what the client really wants, if they think the client thinks about it, they may not think about it in such a you know, in such a particular way, structured way, what they really want should matter depending on what the rest of their portfolio looks like and the reason why they're buying the CTA. Let's, for example, take some examples, okay? So let's suppose that the reason you're buying the CTA is to provide you with a kind of positive convexity sort of downside protection in the event of a stock market crash. So that would imply, firstly, you're probably going to want a huge amount of positive skew, Okay, you want you're going to be wanting all of that. You know, you want to be on something that's looking a lot like kind of tail protection. You know, the kind of um, the sort of disaster protection kind of CTA. You want to be wanting designing something that's very much like that. And you're probably going to want a bias towards financials. Okay, 
And the other thing you're probably going to want is either a zero beta or potentially even a bias towards a negative beta because you, you basically want something that's going to kind of trickle along and then if the stock market crashes going to make a lot of money and protect you from all the bad things that are happening in the rest of your portfolio for example but let's suppose that the reason why you're, you're buying your cta is is for inflation protection um, and i think this is in the context of, of the of the corporate portfolio it's a replacement for gold which was kind of the you know the sort of this is the inflation proofing thing that was in the you know the original kind of the, the Harry Brown portfolio, and uh, it's it's a better it's a better gold, you know, if you like, because it has the positive convexity that comes from um, from trend following, but also because um, it's it's actually trading the things that cause inflation. So what caused what's caused inflation in the last two years? Energies, energy prices, food prices, and the two are linked, of course. Um, so you you know that would imply okay well, what does that imply for the CTR allocating to well you you probably want to have something that um, has got a bias towards being in commodities you're probably potentially going to want to have a long bias a, a positive you know a long bias in terms of beta in those commodities as well um, and you may be not so bothered about the the financial side because it's less clear what happens to to stocks certainly in inflation environments. Bonds will probably go down, so yeah, maybe you want some bonds in there. But again, you probably want to have a uh, a negative beta in there on average as well. And um, sorry, I should have said as well. In the other thing to say, if you're if you want something that's got more positive skew, so in the first case, you're probably going to want faster trend following rather than slower trend following because that's going to have a, a higher positive skew as well. So that that's kind of there you go. I've laid out my. My kind of concept for you and explained it and, I, and I'd, I'd love to discuss it some more yeah no i mean i am um, i actually have heard this as well and you know on the surface it kind of makes sense but i actually disagree because a few years ago i heard this um argument from the short-term space not everyone but from some some short-term managers saying well, you know, markets are moving so fast. We're really the only strategies. This came after the 2018 Volmageddon, where clearly short-term managers did better. So the whole thing was, well, we're the only ones who can really move fast enough and we will give you that convexity and, and all of those things. But since then, short-term has done nothing, not even through some of these crises, not even through March. As I just said it at the top of this episode, they're trailing this year. This year is one of those years where we've had two kind of reversals. They should have been all over that, but they're not. So it's not that I have anything against short term. It's just what I'm, what it goes back to the whole, in my opinion, why you want trend following. And that is because we don't know how what's going to happen and how markets are going to react. So even if you're telling me, oh, we're going to have 8% inflation, so you should have this kind of strategy, we have no idea if that kind of strategy will deliver in an 8% inflation environment, so to speak. And so this is why I'm, I, I think you should definitely diversify your portfolio. You should have different type of strategies. But I'm very cautious about having these steadfast explanation as to how a strategy will react in the future i really don't think we we know we, we can say we know that so i guess i guess the implication of what you're saying for the short-term managers is that the the sort of use of a, a cta component as a kind of like a poor man's tail protection if you like is is a bit you know 
is not really it's not really it's not really what CTAs are for. I guess that the well, I think that's I think that is to some extent true, and also think that I mean you could say short term is is within the CTA definition for sure. I don't view I don't view short term strategies as short term trend following. I think they do something different. They uh, explore or exploit the the um, expansion of momentum, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean they're waiting for the prices to turn against them before they get out and all that stuff. So I, I just think it's it's a dangerous game to try and, and say, well, we know this strategy will do well. It's almost like the debate that was uh, a little bit between uh, you know Bitcoin and, and gold um, a little while back where people were saying, well, if this happens, then definitely gold is going to do much better, or Bitcoin's going. And and it just didn't. And and people were saying, well, when inflation comes back, gold will do tremendously well. It didn't really do a lot when inflation was at its peak. It's done better recently as inflation has come down a bit. But so I'm just I'm just cautious about these very. Um, so, so I think there's a difference between what I'd call um, an empirical judgment about what makes a good inflation hedge, which is where you basically look at history and you say, well, you know, in the 1970s there's inflation and gold did very well, therefore gold is a good inflation hedge. I mean, I, I'm a big I'm a big downer on those things because first of all, you know, there aren't normally, or well, it's been a long time since we've had inflation, right? So that means you can't do that with Bitcoin because it just wasn't around in the 1970s. Um, secondly, that these these inflation episodes are you know, and then there's not that many of them, um, and uh, you know, I, don't, I think it's unreasonable therefore to to draw a conclusion. And thirdly, things change, so you know, the the pressures that maybe drove gold higher in the 1970s with high inflation don't necessarily apply now. Um, so that's one thing, but but I think there is there's a difference in that and a, a kind of thing that structurally will do well, you know, so. If you want to, if you, the what to answer here is buying an inflation hedge, right? So obviously, the purest inflation hedge is tips um, in in the US or the you know the the, the linkers in the UK and the I can't remember what the the French and the German equivalents are called, but they're very expensive, right? You know, they they cost you a lot of money. So um, you know, you you want to you want to buy so in the same way that a, the you know a pure tail protection strategy. Is expensive, right? You know, because you're you're buying all this this out of the money, these money on money options, and it will definitely pay out if things, if the you know, if the market moves against you, it will definitely pay out, but it will be expensive. So what you're doing is you're you're saying, well, I'm going to exchange some certainty for some price, right? Well, if the market moves against you in a certain way, which long vol managers realized last year, yeah, yeah, and there's been there's been this interesting discussion about that, which I found very interesting actually, and the the work done. Um, I think it was by AQR showing that actually these things, you know, don't always pay off when you expect them to because, you know, you can't it's to do with roles and timing and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so um, the thing about the idea is is to say, well, I think you might say, well, if I think if I'm worried about inflation, I think inflation is going to be driven by energy and food prices, then I basically want to be long commodity futures. However, being long commodity futures is expensive because they normally have a negative roll yield. And that's true whether you buy them directly or whether you buy them via an ETP or an ETF. Um, so what I'm going to do is is basically trade certainty for value and say, well, a cheaper way of doing this is by trend-following commodity futures. And therefore, when they do spike, you know, so, so when they do spike, I'm going to participate in that upside. 
I'm hopefully not going to going to lose out as much on average with the roll yield the rest of the time, particularly because you know if you're trend following the adjusted price, if the price is the spot price isn't moving, you will have a short position. You just be collecting that that roll yield the whole time. It's an interesting idea. Now I'm not I'm not I don't personally do it, but I can understand the argument for saying things like, well, okay, in isolation, you know, you don't want to have any kind of sort of beta biases within a trend following portfolio if that's the only thing you own but on the other hand if you own it alongside 60 40 well maybe it makes sense to either reduce your allocation to bonds and stocks in your trend following portfolio or alternatively or as well you know change the kind of beta bias so that you're less likely to be long those two assets because you've already got a whole bunch of long exposure coming in from elsewhere so you know i i think um it, I think it's true to say generally that the, the, the trend following portfolio you'd put together in isolation would be different from the one you put together if you consider sort of the, the rest of the portfolio that, that an investor's holding. You, you mentioned something earlier in your, um, uh, when describing this, uh, you said, well, if people are worried about the equities, maybe they want to be more financially uh, oriented in the manager. I think that's completely false. I think it should be the opposite. It's almost the opposite because what if you go back and you look at the data, what you find is that when equities suddenly are doing badly, like in a quote-unquote crisis period, the part of the portfolio that tends to deliver the returns are actually the commodities because we're going to be caught on the wrong side of the equities. We may even be caught on the wrong side of the bonds as well because of the correlation between the two. So this is this is why, I'm not saying this is going to happen all the time, um, this is just why. One example, very simple example, as to why I don't want to advocate for these kind of certainties in terms of how strategies are going to behave specifically, because we don't know. That's the whole point about trend following. I want to go back to that. The other thing I want to say since uh, that I'm thinking about here is, it's almost like people saying, well, if interest rates go up, stocks must go down. But that's not true either. There are you know, examples of, of where you have periods where interest rates go up and then stocks go up for several years, vice versa. In fact, you have all combinations of up and down between stocks and bonds. They exist and they're not just for short-term periods. They are for multi-year periods. So, so my point is that the reason why I'm so committed to trend following is the fact you know, you need to know what you don't know. And we don't know what the future looked like. Even even if we have history to rely on, we may our systems may react differently, or meaning markets may react differently, and therefore we will react differently uh, in the future. So I understand that from a narrative. I mean, it's a great narrative, but I think that's where I would leave it. Now, the portfolio as a whole, having, you know, a combination of different types of assets and all of that stuff, of course, that makes total sense. But to take it that far and say, well, if you want this, you have to buy this kind of CTA. If you're there, then you have to buy this CTA. No, I think you should have a diversified portfolio CTAs that are structurally different. If you want to diversify your CTA portfolio, find some managers that are structurally different. But don't say that you know exactly how they are going to perform given a certain event. I think no, 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 no none of us uh, will know that. Anyways. Now, um, we don't have much time left. I don't know if you want to keep this to uh, another time. You talked a little bit about that. And actually, I would just suggest people go to your blog and read the latest post you've done about changing some of your uh, trading rules and so on and so forth, adding more markets, etc. I think that's definitely worth a good read. You want you brought up an, the thing that I mentioned in the beginning where you said this is a little bit macro 
oriented. That's the dead ceiling. Of course, I'm always intrigued when you bring something like that up where I'm thinking, what on earth has that to do with trend following? But we like talking about macro. So well, what are your what are your thoughts, my friend? Um, yeah, no, it was um, something interesting. So, I mean, as I've said before, that the whole debt ceiling thing is just ridiculous. Um, you know, the fact that debt ceiling exists, the way that the um, you know a certain political party in the US uses it as a kind of political weapon um, is 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 just completely insane. I, you know, from the world's largest and most economically successful country and uh, on most metrics to to behave like this is just bonkers but anyway i said that before um no it was more a uh, a kind of um interesting kind of game theory type take on it which is i read somewhere that that's that someone said well you know the the thing about the negotiations is actually the the treasury is kind of screwed up here because they could have been they could have had like plan b c d and e ready right so Obviously, there's very there's there's been all kinds of ways discussed as to the ways that you can kind of technically get around this debt ceiling thing, and some of them are just a bit silly, but other others are kind of more serious. Um, but they would all require some changes to the kind of operational procedures of, of the the treasury when, when issuing debt. And um, the point the point that the that was being made was well, they haven't done any of this stuff, you know. Whereas if they'd done it, if they'd actually said, well, yeah, we actually do have plan B, which is we're going to do this, plan C is where we're going to do this, plan D is where we're going to do this, we've done the work, we're, you know, it's literally going to be a question of pushing a button on computer somewhere, then that would massively have strengthened um, you know, Biden's negotiating hand in, in terms of getting this resolved because um, it, you know, it would be like, well, okay, are you, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, we, we, you know, there may well be some constitutional challenges that go to the Supreme Court and what have you, but that will all take time, and in the meantime, you know, they'll be able to borrow more money, and it'll it'll all be fine. And the, the kind of massive potential economic damage and market uncertainty and all this stuff would be completely avoided. Um, so yeah, I think I think um, it's it's quite interesting because normally, in, in when you think about things like financial plumbing and and, and this kind of stuff, we're, we're, we're often people are trying to correct for mistakes that have happened before, right? So the the bad thing happens. Let's let's go back to two thousand and eight. You know, so um, the way that CDS um, were traded OTC and not centrally cleared was a bad thing, and led to you know a huge mess. For example, when when Lehman's went down, and so they like, oh man, we should do something about this. We'll move to central clearing, and now everything is a lot safer. But the point is that they they didn't do that until the bad thing had happened. The debt ceiling is completely different. This is a bad thing we've known about for decades. Um, and 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 therefore, it, I just find it astonishing that the work wasn't done, you know, in in advance to to kind of sort this out. It's almost like they're waiting for the debt ceiling to hit the limit and for you know all this chaos to be unleashed before actually saying, oh well, there's something we can do about this. But it's not like the CDS thing. It's not completely it's to something that wasn't you didn't see coming. We knew this was coming. Well, I mean, I obviously agree with you here, Rob. But but funnily enough, I think in politics. Sometimes you may want to provoke a disaster because what happens in the aftermath is you're given powers that you would otherwise not be given. Um, so, I mean, I'm not suggesting, of course, that that's what the plan is. I'm just saying... So whose plan is this? Is this the Republican or the Democrats' plan? Oh, I have no idea. I don't want to get into US <laughs> politics anyways. Um, and uh, and funnily enough, I mean, obviously, uh, from the latest news, when I uh, looked at uh, the Bloomberg website, 
of course, they say that things are moving closer to an agreement. Um, but the but the interesting thing is that even if they do agree, there's a lot of Democrats that are not happy because they were negotiated directly from the White House. Um, which is so, anyways. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have time to go into uh, the white paper or not the white paper, the research paper from Quantica that I wanted to talk about. We'll do that another time. And then actually, uh, I'm going to wrap up by saying that next week, I think people really want to tune in as well, because I'm trying to tee up Andrew for a debate with an with a CTA that is not particularly seeing eye to eye on what uh, Andrew is doing with his product. So I'm hoping it's going to be quite a fun and lively debate. So uh, watch this space. Hopefully it'll succeed. Um, of course, anyone should go out and get Rob's book now that it's available. So make sure you do that. And of course, if you have any questions for this debate coming up, pros and cons uh, about the uh, CTA replication uh, products that's out there, uh, send them to info on toptradersonplug.com and I'll try and squeeze them in into uh, next week's conversation. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.